2017, Alexandra Yingst had a problem. I needed to get to Reykjavik, and I was up here in the West Fjords. Normally, the drive takes about six hours. But this particular day, there was a massive snowstorm. I didn't feel comfortable driving in the snow, and so a friend drove me all the way down to Reykjavik, and what normally takes six hours took many more because we got stuck on a mountain pass in the snow and had to wait for a plow to come dig us out. After about 10 hours in the car, they finally made it and checked into a hostel. Exhausted, Alexandra sat down at the bar. Next to her was a cheeseburger and fries. Not a cheeseburger and fries that anyone was planning on eating. This thing was on display in a glass case, like a guest of honor. With a little sign that said, hello, I am Mr. Burger. And it had been such an awful day, and I just sat at the bar next to this cheeseburger, and it actually made me feel better. It was just such like a a quirky thing. It's so Iceland. Now I should add, this was not just any cheeseburger. It was a McDonald's Big Mac. And as you'll hear, it wasn't just any Big Mac. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Now, this week, we're bringing you two stories from our friends at the Atlas Obscura podcast. Atlas Obscura is a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Both the stories we're sharing with you today are about old meat. Might sound gross, but just work with me here. Later in the show, we'll take a trip to the world's oldest edible ham in Smithfield, Virginia. It's 120 years old, and that's not even the weirdest thing about it. But this first story is about the last Big Mac in Iceland, and the story it tells us about economics and national identity. Now I'll turn it over to Atlas Obscura host Dylan Thuris to tell us more about Alexandra Yingst and the last Big Mac in Iceland. Alexandra might be the perfect person to have ended up sitting next to the last Big Mac in Iceland. She's from Pennsylvania, but has lived in Iceland for years and is getting her PhD in anthropology. And she sees the Big Mac as a cultural artifact. I thought that it was a a really great way to, to talk about how the local and the global interact and the greater significance of McDonald's in Iceland. And so it had one aspect of being like this funny thing that just exists here. And it also had this aspect of being a symbol of Iceland's entrance into the modern world. Alexandra just so happened to be studying with a professor who had written a lot about McDonald's in Iceland. My name is Kristi Lofstoktir, and I'm a professor of anthropology at the University of Iceland. After Iceland gained independence from Denmark in 1944, the country spent decades trying to establish itself. Rebuilding its confidence in itself. And just this kind of desire of showing somehow the rest of the world that Iceland, you know, should be recognized as standing on equal footing with powerful European countries. In the early 90s, Kristin says Iceland was becoming a lot more integrated internationally. It joined the European markets, and the Iceland Stock Exchange had just been established. And it might sound odd to an American who grew up with a McDonald's in every town. 
But when the golden arches show up in a country, it sends a signal that a place has attained a certain economic status, that its residents have enough disposable income to spend on eating out. So when McDonald's opened in Iceland in 1993, it was a big deal. Kristin remembers glowing headlines when news broke that McDonald's would be coming to Iceland. So much celebration going on. I just remember also just the discussion around me, you know, the excitement for this to take place. Iceland's prime minister took a photo biting into a burger on opening day. The economy was booming. Business was better than ever. And now they had McDonald's. And for the next 15 years, things went pretty well. But then, 2008. The stock market is now down 21%. The global financial meltdown comes to Iceland. The government in this Teetering tiny on the edge of bankruptcy. In the last three weeks, Iceland has nationalized three top banks, its currencies. Iceland's people. banks have so debts that add up to much more than the country's entire economy. The government had to rush in to take over many of those banks and ask Russia for Iceland was devastated by the crash. One by one, every single national bank failed. People's life savings evaporated. The national currency, the krona, lost half its value. Because of that, and the price of imported ingredients, the price of a Big Mac shot up to $6.36. That's more than $8 in today's money. And at the time, it made it the most expensive Big Mac in the entire world. It became more and more expensive for McDonald's to operate, until it simply couldn't anymore. On Halloween of 2009, all three Icelandic McDonald's closed for good. I asked people, you know, what they felt about the closing of McDonald's. And it was really kind of interesting because many people, they said, you know, kind of excusing themselves. I don't really like McDonald's hamburgers that much, but... It was still so shocking. You know, people saying it really felt like we were nobody anymore. We were just not part of, you know, the modern world. And then, of course, when international media also takes this theme up, you know, comparing Iceland to poor and war-torn countries, it adds like an extra layer of humiliation. And that was it. No more Happy Meals, no more Chicken Nuggets, and no more Big Macs. Or so we thought. Three years after McDonald's closed its doors, Jotter Smarasen was getting ready to move from Reykjavik to Denmark. And I was cleaning out my garage. And you know, like it is when, when you, you know, clean out your garages, you find all sorts of stuff. And uh, uh, I remember I found my rollerblades and uh, I noticed that a mouse had chewed on them. So they were damaged. And then I found this bag. The bag was a McDonald's bag. Back on that fateful day, in 2009, Jotter had stood in line at the last McDonald's location in Reykjavik, waiting to buy a Big Mac. He had two reasons, and neither of them had to do with being hungry. First, the burger was a memento of this strange, surreal time in Iceland. And second, he'd heard a rumor that McDonald's burgers don't rot. This three-year-old burger and fries, sitting on a long-forgotten shelf in Jotter's garage, was the last 
Big Mac in Iceland. I was a bit scared to, to see what was inside and didn't really know what to expect. So I opened the bag, I take up the paper box, and what I see inside is a burger that looks like I bought it just 15 minutes ago. You know, if I wouldn't have known better, I would have taken a bite. Just for fairness, in 2020, McDonald's put out a statement that their burgers seem like they don't decompose, and that is due to a lack of moisture and not some sort of nefarious preservatives. So there's that. And then I was, of course, I had a bit of a dilemma because uh, I, I didn't think it made sense to take it to Denmark. But I w- didn't want to throw it out either because this was like a, a historical artifact. I mean, this was the last McDonald's and it was a souvenir from a time that was gone. So I asked myself, well, what do you do with a historical artifact? And of course, I called the National Museum. And for a year, that's where the burger sat, on display at the National Museum of Iceland. Until an expert from Denmark showed up to evaluate the museum's artifacts. And sadly, the Big Mac didn't pass muster. So the museum called Jotter and asked if he wanted his burger back. Which I absolutely did. Jotter found the burger a new home, this time at a local hostel. And here is where Alexandra and the burger cross paths on that snowy night back in 2017. At first, McDonald's was this symbol of Iceland's emerging prosperity. Then its absence became a symbol for the country's rapid decline. But 15 years after the financial collapse, Iceland is well on the mend. In the last decade, unemployment has been at an all-time low. The economy's on the upswing, and tourism has absolutely boomed. Iceland is back on its feet, but they still don't have McDonald's. So what does that mean? These days, all the buildings that used to be McDonald's have now reopened as a local Icelandic burger chain called Metro. And it's really a very normal fast food place. A fast food place where you can get chicken, fries, and yes, of course, you can get burgers. Their equivalent of the Big Mac is called the... Heimsburgari, which translates to world burger, but also in Icelandic that translates to cosmopolitan. And I thought that was funny because it still shows like the burger is, it's global. Like it's the world burger. Even though it's not McDonald's anymore, it's still a symbol of, of inclusion in a larger international community where people eat burgers. <laughs> Meanwhile, through it all, the last Big Mac sits stoically under glass, getting a little drier, a little harder, but somehow not any moldier. It, it looks great. Looks great for its age. <laughs> it looks so good, in fact, that more than a few fries have gone missing over the years. And I am loving it. You can still see the last Big Mac in Iceland, but it's since moved locations. It's no longer on display at the hostel where Alexandra saw it. The burger now resides at a different hostel called the Snotra Hostel in southern Iceland. If you go, please take a picture. Send it to us. We would love to know how the burger's looking. If you want to learn more about the last Big Mac in Iceland, Alexandra wrote a very entertaining article all about it, which you can find at atlasobscura.com.
Coming up after the break, Dylan talks with Atlas Obscura's Sam O'Brien about seeing the world's oldest edible ham. It felt to a much lesser degree. Like when I was raised Catholic and my youth group went to the Vatican and we saw the Pope go by in his Pope mobile. And I was just like, I had this feeling of like this reverence and excitement and you just like fed off the other people around you. And it was like that, but with a ham. Stick around. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. And in case you missed the memo, I'm happy to report that variety packs for my new pasta shapes, Vesuvio and Quattratini, are on sale now. So you can get a six-pack. It's got two Vesuvio, two Quattratini, and two Cascatelli shipped to your door. It takes a few weeks because these have to be hand-packed. These were not available when the new shapes first went on sale, but they are available now. So get yours at Sfolini.com. That's S-F-O-G-L-I-N-I.com. Okay, back to Dylan Thuris and Sam O'Brien from Atlas Obscura. Okay, so walk me walk me to the ham. Walk me through. Where, I don't even know where we are. Yes. See, set some scene. Where we are in the world, what is the place? Walk me in. So we're in Smithfield, Virginia, which, okay. uh, according to the people of Smithfield, is the ham capital of the world. Um, hams that come from Smithfield, they're like, it's like champagne. You can't call it a Smithfield ham unless it's cured and processed in Smithfield, Virginia. All right. So um, it's the one in the middle. Yeah, actually. So I met with Jennifer England. She is the director of the Isle of Wight County Museum and pretty much an expert on all things world's oldest edible ham. People that come to the museum, it's a roadside attraction, and that's what they want to see. They want to see the world's oldest ham. And, um, you know, as soon as you drive up to the museum, um, the ham is the star. Like, there are photos of the ham outside on the flags. Enter to see the world's oldest edible ham. And then there's a gift shop. There are postcards with PD cradling his ham. There are keychains with the ham on it. So, yeah, you know, like, even if though you haven't seen it yet, like, everything is, like, preamble to the star of the show. So you walk into the museum and in a big uh, climate controlled glass case, there are three hams. One is what they claim to be the world's largest ham. Um, One is Uh, just another ham that's pretty old. And then just your average average ham for scale and and age comparison. Yeah, okay. It's just happy to be here. Um, And then in the middle. And right here in the center of our case is the world's oldest ham. It is, it's hideous. It's not pretty. Um, It looks like a, some people say like a dried leather handbag. Uh, To me, it looks like a a dried old corpse. Um, Not that I've seen like a ton in my life, but like in museums, when you see like the bog bodies or something like that. This is a ham mummy. I mean, we're talking about a ham mummy. That's exactly what it is. A mummy. Yes, it's a ham mummy. Yeah. But attached to the ham mummy is also a little collar that's in gold, and it says on it, pet ham. What is... (laughs) uh, What is happening? Not video, is it? No, it's it's recording. Yeah, I'm audio. Put on my mustache and my glasses. Okay. Uh, unless you sound significantly different with the mustache. <laughs> no, 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 okay. No, no, no. Oh. 
I also had the pleasure of meeting an actor who portrays uh, P.D. Gwaltney Jr. Uh, at events where they celebrate the ham. And I eventually became, well, not, not, not the, the ham king of the world, but something like that. That's right. <laughs> where did this ham come from? Like, how did it get made? How did it end up being around for 100 years? So... Just to back up, sort of for anyone who doesn't know the curing process, it basically all goes back to salt and drying something out. Um, mm -hmm. So basically what Gwaltney Foods did is um, they salted the ham, they um, removed all the blood, they drained the blood out, and then it just dried. But where it gets interesting is the ham gets lost and misplaced in a warehouse, and so it just sits there for 20 years. And then P.D. Gwaltney Jr., who's the head of the company, he discovers it in the 1920s, and he's like, oh, crap, like, this ham is still good. Our preservation methods must be phenomenal. And uh, P.D. Gwaltney Jr. said, well, um, we should use this as a marketing piece. We should, you know, bring it on out. We're going to go ahead and, you know, put a brass collar on it. We'll take it to, you know, trade shows and, and events. He had it insured, and, uh, and it resided, you know, it, it toured the world. <laughs> it went, um, and it lived in a safe. Uh, I like to think of him as like the P.T. Barnum of meat. So mm -hmm. he took the ham and he was like, I'm going to bring this to expos and to like sales meetings to show everyone our hams have real staying power. When the Gwaltney Foods Company preserves a ham, it lasts. So that's when he attaches the collar to it that says pet ham. <laughs> um, that's when he gives it a little leash. And so he starts bringing <laughs> the ham around, parading it around as this like wonderful symbol of his meat company. What is he dragging it by the leash or carrying it in his arms like a baby dog? Like I need that, to Okay, that's exactly it. Not a baby dog, a baby. So a there ba are photos of this man. He had a whole <laughs> PD had an entire photo shoot done. Like he is so proud of this ham. He's cradling it in his arms like a newborn babe. And he's just staring at the camera like a proud papa. I, I asked the curator, like, did he have kids? Because it seems like all of his love is being directed at this piece <laughs> at of this meat. Old and he ham. did. Yes, here's Sarah's showing <laughs> the photos. Old... Oh, Look no. at how proud he is. He's so proud. <laughs> this and man loves his old ham more than anything else in his life. Right? And this... Look at, you can see the collar. You can see that the leash. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, man, did he love that ham. Was it, was it all marketing? Was it pride in the business? Why did he love this ham as much as he did? I think it's a little of both. I mean, yeah. it's definitely, it was the family business. And I think there was like a big push to, um, for the local industry to sort of claim pork production as their own. Mm. And so PD was just a big part of that. I, I have to ask the question that I ha has to be on everyone's mind. It's certainly on mine. Can you still eat the ham? Is it, is it possible? to still eat the ham or would you, I don't know, die or something? So it's technically possible. Um, <laughs> they're actually, uh, microbiologists have weighed in on this because it's that it's that important. Yeah. Um, and just, yeah, anything that's preserved like the way this ham was is technically still edible. Um, although, and I was hinting pretty heavily at this on my visit at the museum with Jennifer, there really is no way you can be 100% sure until someone has tasted it. 
we, you don't eat your artifacts. Has anybody ever asked if they could Yeah, the that's the standard joke when folks come in, you know, hey, I brought my fork, I'm ready to sample it. So we get a, we get a lot <laughs> okay. of that. Okay. And then we, we get a lot of, um, you know, you, I didn't think you had the oldest ham. I thought I was the oldest ham. Uh, <laughs> and, okay. You know, and that's, that's fine, too. Yeah. Um, there is a rumor going around that um, every year the curator of the Isle of Wight Museum uh, cleans the climate-controlled uh, container because, like, bits of, of dried spice and ham sometimes just come off, so they just have to sure. clean both the container and then the ham itself. Um, but the rumor is that the curator tastes the ham when they do that. They, they said that's not true, but I still would like to be there when they clean it just to campaign for a lick. Just, like, maybe, I don't, do you know how they clean it? Like, what do you mean? Are they scrubbing it? Are they? So they're not cleaning the ham itself, per okay. se. Over the course of the year, the ham sort of releases, shall we say, meat dust. Um, and that meat dust accumulates on the plexiglass itself. So once a year, they go in there and they just clean off all the meat dust that the ham has slowly released over the course of the year. Yeah. 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 So it's not really, it's not going to go bad. It's turning no. into like, it's sort of petrifying maybe a little bit. I yeah. mean, everyone says like, it's edible. You wouldn't want to eat it. Like it's not going to taste delicious. Um, but I let me be the judge of that. Re real, like, yeah, true, real question. Here's the question actually. <laughs> Given a slice of the world's oldest ham, just a shaving, you know, like like you do with Parmesan, a little curl. Would you Would you eat it? Would you eat the oh, world's oldest? One hundred percent. Of course, of course. 100%. You gotta try it. I mean, I I'm a pretty reckless eater. <laughs> this so. is true. I know this to be true. <laughs> like a lot of the editors on Gastro Obscura, I get food poisoning like every trip because I'm just like, yeah, I'll eat that. Yeah, yeah I'll good. eat that. That's fine. No, I'll ask questions later. I love so. this about you, Sam. This is one of my favorite things about you. I would even be satisfied with while they clean the ham to just be there because mm. apparently like the the meat dust that gets kicked up is very pungent. So oh, no. I'm just like, like the curator oh, no. said, like the person doesn't wear their favorite sweater that day because it just seeps into their clothes. I'm like, that sounds awesome. I would just love to be covered in meat dust. And then when someone asks me what it is, I'd be like, well, that's the world's oldest edible ham you're smelling. Sam, you're in a very small club of people who would say, I would just love to be covered in meat dust. <laughs> So, Sam, you've been on the old food beat for AtlasObscura.com for, for a while. You've written about bog butter, this kind of ancient butter that's found in swamps and old Victorian cakes. But it seems like maybe the ham has, like, a different thing going on. Yeah, totally. Um, the ham is more exciting. It's more quirky. Like, the Isle of Wight Museum has really embraced that sort of P.T. Barnum spirit that P.T. Yeah. Gwaltney was was embodying. And the whole community really gets into it, too. Jennifer told me the ham uh, gets Halloween cards, and every year it gets a whole birthday party. Sometimes people will bring presents, and uh, I think this year somebody sent mustard. He got a, a couple of birthday mm. cards in the mail that I just thought was hilarious that he... Wouldn't that tell uh, the song we sing? Oh, we sing Hammy Birthday. Hammy Birthday. Aww. We do. We really do. When is the ham's birthday? In July. It's always the second Saturday of July. Happy 
Um, they have something called Ham Cam, which is a 24-hour camera that's a live feed of the ham. So you can log on to it day or night and just watch the ham. Any any time, any time you can go look at the ham. You can look wow. at the ham right now. See what wow. it's up to. See who's looking at it. And in fact, um, the local hotels in Smithfield, instead of do not disturb signs that you know you can hang on the doorknob, the do not disturb signs say, "Do not disturb. I am watching ham cam." So it's clear the town totally loves the ham, supports the ham. Oh yeah. Big, big, big ham anniversary coming up. Exactly. Uh, if there was one thing that you just were like most delighted by in this sort of totally bizarre, delightful story, was there anything that really grabbed you? I mean, what delighted me the most was probably the fact that a few years ago they made a 3D replica of the ham because they wanted to see how much like it was shrinking over time. Um, yeah. So they were like, all right, let's. For posterity, just get that physical snapshot of the size of the ham. And that's great for science and all. But what I liked about it was it gave me the opportunity to hold the ham, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and uh, I I never get starstruck when I'm doing stories because journalism and wanting to be a good reporter. But this was the only time I said, can you please take a photo of me? So the, I had the curator. And I'm, of course, holding it like a newborn, like, like crazy. <laughs> love that. You you, you, and Petey both share a deep and abiding love for this old ham. I think my favorite thing is, like, the... F- it's the leash. Like, there's something about the fact that there's a leash that makes the ham, like, part of the party. Like, it's the, it's like made like – it really, like, gives it a life that is just – it's kind of – it's just a delight. It's a, it's a strange and wondrous thing, this old ham. Sam, thank you for taking me to Smithfield and – to the world's oldest ham. What a what a wonderful story. Thank you. Enjoyed talking about it. Special thanks to Jennifer England, the director of the Isle of Wight County Museum, and Albert Burkard, the actor who portrays P.D. Gwaltney Jr. That, my friends, was two episodes of the Atlas Obscura podcast, a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. They have a lot of great food episodes, so check it out. The Oldest Ham Story was hosted by Sam O'Brien and Dylan Thuris. It was produced by Sarah Wyman and edited by Gianna Palmer, with sound design and mixing by Luce Fleming. The Iceland Big Mac Story was hosted by Dylan Thuris and produced by our pal and sometime producer Johanna Mayer, with sound design by Chris Naka and mixing by Luce Fleming. The Atlas Obscura team includes Doug Baldinger, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder-Arnold, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire Seuss, our own Tracy Samuelson, John Delore, Casey Holford, and Peter Clowney. The Atlas Obscura theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. The Sporkful production team includes me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producer Andres O'Hara. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. The show is mixed by Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm James Nance from Knoxville, Tennessee, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Eat.